This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. As it turns out, we had two guests on the show two weeks ago, one guest on the show last week, and the way it's heading, it looks like we're going to have no guests on today's show. At least, not live guests. We may, in our third segment, air a wonderful program we had some years back about a most remarkable character, John Whiteside's Parsons. Our interview with George Pendle is one of our all-time favorites, and given this new movie coming out, The Master, loosely based upon... uh, the character of L. Ron Hubbard. We thought it might be a good time to dust off this old interview because Mr. Hubbard does have a small but curious role to play in the great saga that is the story of the founding of both Aerojet General and Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Matters which in both cases John Whiteside's person had a hand in. Stay tuned for that in our third segment today. This is one that aired several years ago, and I know a lot of you uh, newer listeners may not have caught this one, so today's your big chance. This is one bizarre tale, ladies and gentlemen. It involves rocketry, the occult, science fiction, explosive devices, and trying to be a bohemian while living in Pasadena. On next week's show, we plan to bring uh, film critic Gary Chu on this program to kick around the story of this movie, The Master, and that should be a lot of fun. Let us jump into today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is the 20th of September. It was on September 20th in 1519 that the great Portuguese navigator Ferdinand Magellan set sail from Spain with five ships and 270 men in search of a western sea route to the Spice Islands. While Magellan did actually find a route that enabled you to sail west, to the Spice Islands, it turned out to be incredibly impractical. Excuse me, Doug, was he a nicer guy than Vasco da Gama? <laughs> well, thanks for asking. Uh, uh, research will have to continue in that area. I'm not sure, but I certainly hope so. Wow, and speaking of things Portuguese, in the year 1761, on September 20th, Jesuit Gabriel Malagrida was burned to death, having been convicted of conspiring to assassinate the king. Turns out he was later vindicated. Oh, well. And on this date, September 20th in 1853, American inventor Elisha Otis sold his first elevator called a safety hoist. It was the first to employ a device to keep it from falling if the hoisting cable broke. I remember reading an account of Otis's demonstration of his device where he brought an axe on board and was busily busy hacking at the cable that was lifting the uh, lift, confident that his safety device would prevent catastrophe, and apparently it did. Born on this date in 1925 was singer Gogi Grant of The Wayward Wind. And while it's true she's not very famous, I just like saying Gogi Grant. And I guess I know what our bumper music is going to be on this segment. Our quote of the day, and this was sent to us by Polly, comes from pugnacious atheist Richard Dawkins, who said recently, Science flies you to the moon. Religion flies you into buildings. I quote that it comes from Gloria Steinem, who once said, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Our jokes of the day are as follows. The first from Conan O'Brien is, 
Tom Cruise is being accused of having the Church of Scientology audition women to be his wife. I don't know what the problem is. At least someone in this economy is still actually hiring. And said Craig Ferguson a few weeks back, the VMAs were earlier tonight. VMA stands for Video Music Awards. They were held in downtown Los Angeles at the Staples Center. Because what says rock and roll like an office supply superstore? Our stat of the day is 98 years. As in the fact that a fisherman from Scotland has now broken the world record for retrieving a message in a bottle that was set adrift almost 98 years ago. Apparently, Andrew Leeper found the bottle, one of 1,890 released by the British government in 1914, to map the seas off Scotland's northern coast. Last week, Guinness World Records confirmed it as the oldest such message yet discovered. A note inside the bottle asks the finder to report the discovery and promises a reward of a sixpence. Unfortunately for Leeper, that coin was last minted in 1970. We do want to hand it to the British, however, for finally adopting a decimal system of coinage. It only took them, what, three centuries? And no, we're not going to get into the whole metric system thing here in America today. Except to note that this correspondent is on record as still favoring the mile and the Fahrenheit system of measuring temperature. We are, however, ready to give up the half pint for the half liter and the pound. No, actually, no, I take it back. I'm not ready to give up the pound for the kilogram. At least not on the bathroom scale, all right? But please, save your hate mail. We know how this arouses people. All right, before we get too aroused, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, it was a good week a few weeks back for The Force, after a man dressed as Darth Vader robbed a Toledo bank. Apparently, the powerful Sith Lord, in this case, used a semi-automatic pistol instead of the more traditional lightsaber. It was, conversely, a bad week some weeks back for the state of Mississippi in the wake of recent data showing that the state is the fattest in the United States. That's for the sixth year in a row. Louisiana and West Virginia were close behind, while Colorado rated as the skinniest state. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for karma. After Alexander Galarza, age 27, of Florida, was arrested for allegedly smashing a car windshield during a domestic dispute by hurling a statue of the Buddha. And it was both a bad and ugly week recently for trying to create a Sasquatch hoax. With the news that Randy Lee Tenley of Kalispell, Montana, while attempting to create a Bigfoot sighting, dressed up in a shaggy costume and stood on the highway. He was dressed in a military-style ghillie suit, a camouflage outfit that makes the wear look like a pile of moss, when he was hit by a 15-year-old driver. A second car then ran over Tinley as he lay in the road, killing him. Sergeant Steve Laven of the Montana Highway Patrol said, Being camouflaged at night, uh, Tinley was hard to spot. Adding, Kalispell wasn't a hotbed of Sasquatch activity. I haven't heard of Bigfoot sightings for years, he said. I thought it was a fad that went away. Well, maybe so. Tenley's friends told police that he wanted to whip up Bigfoot hysteria. 
So Radio Parallax believes there is a lesson in this for all of us. First, it's just plain not a good idea to try and whip up Bigfoot hysteria. And second, if you decide to do this, for God's sakes, be careful. Because if you don't follow these simple bits of advice, you may wind up as a Darwin Award winner. You know, we're fond of the Only in America section of the Week magazine, but let's, let's pick on a few other countries today, shall we? How about from the Only in Sweden file? Apparently, Sweden's spy agency, Sapo, is struggling to explain why it spent $800,000 in taxpayer money on a James Bond-themed party for its staff. The bash in the summer of 2011 featured casino tables, a swing band, and a gourmet spread. The lavish event only came to public attention a few weeks ago because of an accounting error. Sapo claimed more than the permitted amount in sales tax reimbursement. Sapo head Anders Thornberg said the party was a rare perk for staff for after several terror threats and an Islamic suicide bombing the previous year and said, We've been subjected to extreme pressure, and we thought we needed a special gathering. How about this one from the Only in China department? Apparently the latest beach accessory in China is the face kini, a full head mask that ensures that wearers go home without any trace of a tan. In China, darker skin has traditionally been associated with outdoor labor while pale skin indicates aristocratic status. So the new mask is proving to be popular. The Face Keeney's manufacturer promises that the Face Keeney will not only keep beachgoers pale, but also protect them from insects and jellyfish. How about from the only in Dubai file? Apparently, uh, a couple months ago, when there was a Blackberry outage in Dubai, Police said the Emirates' roads were then safer. Traffic accidents in the country fell 20% on days when BlackBerry service was disrupted. In Abu Dhabi, accidents fell 40%. Police say declines occurred because people were unable to use their smartphones while driving. We made some passing mention on the show a couple weeks back, I think, to this um, story about them clearing some trees up in the Sierra so aspirins could grow. I don't know. At least, at least I meant to, even if I didn't. But there was a disturbing uh, article in the editorial pages of the Bee last week from Chad Hansen, described as director of the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute, which is based in Cedar Ridge in the northern Sierra. I guess I'll just quote a little bit from it. Said Mr. Hansen, many people believe that extensive commercial logging in our national forests, especially clear-cutting, is a thing of the past. But a current example is the Outback Logging Project, north of Independence Lake in the Tahoe National Forest, where the agency is clearing nearly 500 acres of old-growth forest. The Forest Service knows that public opposition to commercial logging on public lands has grown over the years, so the agency, with a wink and a nod, has creatively promoted the Outback Project, and others like it, as ecological restoration and forest health. He goes on, tens of millions of taxpayer dollars are spent every year subsidizing commercial logging in our public lands. And the Forest Service profits, not only from these funds, but also from the timber sales revenue generated by selling trees on national forests to private logging corporations. The agency keeps most of the revenue for its own budget. With such a perverse incentive for forest management abuse on public lands, it's no wonder the agency is increasingly finding creative ways to justify selling large trees including old-growth trees, for its own profit. 
In order to do so, however, it must mislead the public and misrepresent the science. He notes that the environmental assessment for the Outback Project uh, sees the Forest Service claiming that some logging of conifer trees is needed in order to promote growth and regeneration of aspen stands. He says, in fact, the Forest Service's own study found that thinning only smaller, younger trees within just 30 feet of aspen stands effectively encourages aspen growth and regeneration. In stark contrast, in the Outback Project, the Forest Service is clear-cutting 150 feet or more from aspen trees in huge swaths, even removing the great majority of the large conifers eight feet around and bigger, which are 250 to 300 years old based on my count of the tree rings. Well, this certainly warrants some further investigation. Maybe we'll bring Chad Hansen on to talk about this. In fact, let's take a moment to segue from that into some other economic stories floating around. I've got a pile in front of me related to that topic. I think we should just thumb through a few items here. How about this rather non-startling <laughs> conclusion from the headlines of McClatchy Newspapers, article by Tim Johnson last June 17th. Headline, Monopolies said to stifle Mexico's economic growth. The article starts off by explaining how few companies control most of the Mexican economy. Note that the impact on Mexico and, and by limiting that country's growth on the U.S. is huge. Mexico's chief antitrust official, Eduardo Perez Moda, said poor Mexicans pay as much as 40% more than they should for basic goods and services because of monopolistic practices. It also hobbles the economy. Experts blame Mexico's business environment squarely on the country's political system, where politicians do the bidding of tycoons, government doesn't regulate the business as it can, and favoritism and negotiation when it comes to applying the law are the norm. Gee, in that respect, Mexico is so unlike the United States. But seriously, being a smaller economy with even more concentration than we have here in America, basically a holdover from the Spanish feudal system imposed upon Mexico centuries ago. Um, it is clearly worse down south of the border. Our intern, Letty Chavez, uh, talked some years back about uh, Carlos Slim. I believe the world's richest man at this point, or certainly one of the candidates. The 72-year-old Slim is a case study, says the article, on how the impact of Mexico's dysfunctional system spills in the United States. Three years ago, Slim reached into his deep pockets and bailed out the New York Times with a loan of $250 million, which it since has paid back. But his fortune is equivalent to about 7% of Mexico's economic output. In the 90s, Slim became the owner of Telefonos de Mexico, or Telmex, which until that time had been a state-owned telephone monopoly, and now appears to be a Carlos Slim-owned telephone monopoly which forces Mexican citizens to pay one of the highest rates in the world for long-distance calls. The less we pick on poor Mexico, let's move closer to home. By the way, we would again refer you to Matt Taibbi's article in Rolling Stone this week, titled, Greed and Debt, The True Story of Mitt Romney and Bain Capital. Matt Taibbi's piece is, as always, excellent, but there's a two-page accompanying article by Tim Dickinson, titled The Federal Bailout That Saved Romney, which is also worth reading. In fact, doggone, I think I should quote a bit from it as well. Said, said Dickinson, Mitt Romney likes to say he won't apologize for his success in business. But what he never says is, thank you to the American people for the federal bailout of Bain and company that made so much of his outsized wealth possible. 
According to the candidate's mythology, Romney took leave of his duties at the private equity firm Bain Capital in 1990 and rode in on a white horse to lead a swift restructuring of Bain and Company, the parent company, preventing the collapse of the consulting firm where his career began. When the Boston Globe reported on the rescue at the time of his Senate run against Ted Kennedy, campaign aides spun Romney as the wizard behind a long-shot miracle, bragging he had saved bank depositors all over the country $30 million when he saved Bain & Company. In fact, government documents on the bailout obtained by Rolling Stone show that the legend crafted by Romney is basically a lie. The federal records obtained under the Freedom of Information Act reveal that Romney's initial rescue attempt at Bain & Company was actually a disaster, leaving the firm so financially strapped that it had no value as a going concern. Even worse, the federal bailout ultimately engineered by Romney screwed the FDIC, the bank insurance system backed by taxpayers, out of at least $10 million. And in an added insult, Romney rewarded top executives at Bain with hefty bonuses at the very moment he was demanding his handout from the feds. And in keeping with the description of this article and this correspondent's frequent joke over the past few weeks that Mitt Romney is actually Gordon Gecko from Oliver Stone's Wall Street movie. And if you don't believe me, I just say read the piece by Tim Dickinson. I'd do it myself, but I think it would take a little much, too much time for today's show. Just one note in summary that after Romney engineered a deal with banks to save Bain, he inserted a poison pill agreement into it to where the money, where instead of being required to use its cash to pay back the firm's creditors, that money could be pocketed by Bain executives in the form of fat bonuses, starting with VPs making 200000 and up. Someone at the FDIC lamented, the company can deplete its cash balances by making officer bonus payments and still be in compliance with the loan documents. In other words, yeah, rather than pay you back, I'm just going to give everybody in the company a big, fat paycheck. What do you think of that, FDIC? Yeah, and the FDIC, that's, that's the government. That's the money banks pay in to, to rescue insolvent banks. Evidently, Romney took the money and gave him the finger. Might be a good time to revisit a piece we mentioned about the Merrill Lynch deal. A piece by Gretchen Morganson in the New York Times a few months ago noted that days before Bank of America shareholders approved the bank's $50 billion purchase of Merrill Lynch, that was in December of 2008, top bank executives were advised that losses in the investment firm would hammer the combined company's earnings for the years to come after that. Of course, shareholders were not told about those looming losses, they instead had to rely upon rosier projections from the bank that the deal would make money relatively soon after it was completed. Noted the piece, the disclosure coming in light of a private litigation is likely to reignite concerns that federal regulators and prosecutors have not worked hard enough to hold key executives accountable for their actions during the financial crisis. Hmm, do you think? Also want to cite an article by Francine McKenna from the Financial Times in August noting it's time to audit the auditors. Said McKenna, this week marks the 10th anniversary of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, enacted in the wake of the Enron scandal to hold accounting firms accountable if they failed to detect financial misdeeds. But a decade on, audit companies continue to deny responsibility for frauds that happen on their watch. The big four auditing firms, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, and KPMG are paid 50 billion dollars, yes, with a B, by U.S. companies each year to certify that banks and corporations earn what they say they earn and behave as they're supposed to behave. 
but notes the piece, auditors failed to offer any advance warning about losses at MF Global, Lehman Brothers, J.P. Morgan, and many others. That's because the handful of auditing firms that dominate the market depend on repeat clients for business, just like the credit rating agencies. These firms continue to earn big fees selling side services to the companies they're supposed to monitor. Notes, uh, Francine McKenna, investors deserve auditors that police sloppy internal controls and serve as an early warning system. We need reform again. And, you know, we haven't mentioned lawyers once so far. It's time to get into this whole big scam of suing over the American with Disabilities Act infractions. You know, that we could do a whole show on that. And we need to take a break. So let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty of science and fun stuff in segment two, so stick around. Still kin. 